Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. A looming general election, a party on the verge of a historic landslide, a leader with an iron-like grip on message discipline, waging war on complacency. Sound familiar? A new dawn has broken, has it not? Education, education and education. Tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. A politics of courage and honesty and trust. Welcome to Lessons in a Landslide, an exclusive Red Box podcast series to mark 20 years since New Labour swept to power. In interviews with all of the key players in the 1997 campaign, recorded before Theresa May triggered her snap election, we discuss life on the political front line and the -the behind-the-scenes battles between Labour's big beasts. In this episode, I speak to Angie Hunter, Tony Blair's oldest friend, about being his gatekeeper, surviving in a team of pushy blokes, and relations with Tetchy Cherie Blair. Sparrows always has to go and yeah. you know speak to the brownies, and I hadn't given, hadn't told, and she was t- you know sort of had to be hoiked out from somewhere, and naturally across yeah, with yeah, me yeah. over that. So it was those sort of things. They were, again, it was a slight misogynist streak mm-hmm. amongst the the journos. Yeah, that you know they described us as ferrets in a sack. Angie Hunter, variously fixer bag carrier-in-chief, keeper of the keys and gatekeeper to Tony Blair throughout the 97 election and beyond. Tony Blair himself described how he first met. He said he'd known each other since the age of 16, where he tried clumsily, he said, to get into a sleeping bag at a party without success. And he described it as a best, his best friend for years ever after. So, Andrew Hunter, welcome. Just talk me through how you got to know Tony Blair there, because you, you, of all the people who... who were with him during that time in government. You, you'd known him the longest. Yeah. I mean, it, it is funny, this sleeping bag incident, <laughs> which 
people often, you know, he's written lots of other really great things about me, by the way. <laughs> well, um, well, come on to that. Yeah, so, come yeah. on, I thought we'll start but, at the beginning. We'll start at the beginning. Because I don't have a sort of massive uh, recollection of the sleeping bag incident. Um, we met, uh, uh, it's, you know, everybody knows, we met at a, at a party in Scotland when I think I was 14. John Rentall pointed this out to me the other day. I was 14, not 15. 14, and Tony was 16. And we were both at boarding schools. And in those days, when you met at these dances, they were called, not parties, dances, <laughs> what, your opening gambit was, what school do you go to? And I said, St Leonard's, he said, Fetish. And he said, oh, do you know... And he said her name. Um, and I said, yes, she's a very good friend of mine. He said, oh, brilliant. He said, because I've got the hots for her. And he said, you know, you can, can you give her a message? And I basically was that person for him from the very beginning. Not, I hasten to say, an importuner of women for him, but his fixer, fixer. doer, carrier of message, um, helper, friend, you know, and that, I was 14. And then we just stayed, you know, really, really good mates all our lives. You know, people have speculated about us. You know, I'm sure you'll probably you'll raise it later anyway. Um, but the, the thing about us is we've just been amazingly good mates for a, a very long time and still are. And then you worked for me in Parliament. Uh, and I know you've described this before, that, you know, the glamour of working for a backbench MP, sitting with an upturned bin... And uh, so you were there sort of in the beginning when, when all, all people who end up becoming Prime Minister, they all have to start out somewhere. And it was in a, quite a pokey office. It was on the T corridor, T as in PQRST, UV. Uh, and that was the name of it. It was this tiny little room um, that he shared uh, with Gordon Brown when I arrived there. And literally there was no room other than two desks facing each other. Hence me, my desk being... The puff. I sat on a puff and little leather thing, and then the um, the uh, waste bin was my my desk. And I started out as a research assistant. That was my title, and that's what I did for him. I did research for his speeches, things he was doing in Parliament, and I helped his PA or secretary out. She was called then um, on sort of constituency matters and things if they were you know were sort of relevant in the house in the chamber and then I was there you know people like Alistair Campbell would he was working for the mirror then he'd drop in any stories you know what's going on you know so I was there it was a it was a busy office in that people popped in because Gordon and Tony were you know quite interesting characters and people um you know wanted to be you know in their Milieu. And so you, New Labour was born in that room, would you say? Was that where...? Yeah, I would say Neil had a lot to do yeah. with New Labour. I mean, we must never, ever forget that. And Tom Sawyer, you know, it wasn't forged in that room. It was, it was developed in that yeah. room by Gordon and Peter in particular. Peter had become our Director of Communications, yeah. Peter Mandelson, in uh, Walworth Road, we were then. Um, so it was certainly a hub of New Labour, I would say. So there was a lot of ideas going on in there, but there, of course, around that time, was that when John Smith was then leader? No, we had Neil, and then, of course, Neil lost the 92 election, yeah. and John stood, and there was a thing, you know, should Gordon stand, all of that stuff. Tony did think Gordon should stand against John, but anyway, we, he didn't. Um, John Smith became leader, um, 
Tony was made Home Secretary, which was big doings yeah. for him. We were, you know, really pleased. And for my, me, my job, obviously much more exciting. Yeah, yeah. Doing, you know, being research assistant to a Home Secretary. I was, by this time, I was sort of running his office as well. Because, you know, and I was recruiting more people. I recruited James Pennell. <laughs> I recruited Tim Allen. Um, Sarah Hunter, all who eventually, you know, stayed on yeah, in yeah. the policy unit. David Miliband was one of my colleagues. He was at the IPPR then. So, you know, all these people, were, were, I'd sort of st started to gather uh, for Tony. And then, of course, John Smith died in 94 of a heart attack, totally unexpectedly. We were, it's quite interesting, just at that period, Gordon and Tony were beginning to get a bit concerned about the direction of New Labour. I mean, it was it was New Labour compared to what it had been, and, yeah. and Neil had certainly brought it on. But John Smith, they were just slightly concerned that it was a little bit statist, a little bit old-fashioned. There wasn't enough new... There wasn't enough dialogue yeah, about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they were beginning to sort of just get slightly fretful about it. Um, but, and then, of course, we know, you know, he, he dropped down dead of a heart attack, totally unexpectedly. And then... The race was on for the successor, and it's it's striking. And obviously, at the time, everyone's very careful not saying anything publicly. But it's striking looking back at the hundreds of memoirs which were from that period. How quickly thoughts turn to who's going to run, who isn't going to run, and the race sort of gets going Listen, almost I, from the second the news breaks. I came out of the lift, knowing that you know, just coming in from work. I came in slightly later than usual. Took my kids to school that morning because I knew Tony was not going to be there because he was, you know, it was our first day of the European yeah. elections. Came upstairs, lift doors open, and there's Peter Hyman, who was Donald Dewar's research assistant, who's not, we know who Peter yeah, yeah, Hyman is yeah. now, of course. And um, he just came towards me and he had tears coming down his face. He said, have you heard? And my first reaction was Tony's plane has crashed. Wow. Because Tony, I knew he was yeah. flying up that, that morning. He said, no, he said, John's died. And I, you know, I know it's a terrible thing, and please forgive me, um, Anne, that's John's wife, but I, my first thing was, oh, thank God it's not the plane. <laughs> um, and literally, by the time, I, I, and we started walking towards my office, Peter Hyman and I, and literally in those two seconds, it took, it took me only two seconds to think, you know, first of all, you know, thank God. Secondly, poor Smith family. And then third, oh my God, I know what's going to happen now. You know, the race is going to be on. And that was before I even walked into my office. I walked in and there was Robin Cook sitting there and Donald Dewar. He was on the phone to Tony. He was the one that told him as Tony landed in Scotland. So that's where uh, it started. It, you know, we know the story of Tony and Gordon. There were, you know, several days of discussion between them, which Sue Nye, who was Gordon's person, yeah. and I, can, you know, we kept that, that whole thing secret, uh, you know, whilst their discussions were yeah, underway. Yeah. Um, and then, well, we know what happened. Gordon didn't stand. Tony did. Uh, um, Mark, uh, John Prescott stood against him. And... Well, the rest is history, as they say. So then at that point, you're, you've gone from working on an upturn bin to working for the leader of the opposition. Yeah. But 
looking back, it all looks inevitable that Labour are going to win the 97 election. But presumably it didn't feel like that in 1994. Oh, Christ, no. I mean, I can remember, the very first thing I remember, actually, when I walked into that office and Robin Cook and Donald were there, was my phone was going. And I picked it up, and there had been on the news that John Smith had had a heart attack. Not that he had died. We knew he died. You know, the close people. Yeah. But they, they wanted to find John Smith's daughter, who was travelling in America. Oh, okay. You know, they didn't want her to hear inadvertently. And, um, uh, and m my phone went, and it was Sarah Baxter, who is now deputy editor at the Sunday Times. Yeah. And she was then a, a leader writer on the Evening Standard. And she said, look, Angie, I just thought I'd let you know that... Um, um, I know he's. I know it's, he's, he's not died. But if he were to die, I'm going to write that Tony should be the next leader. And I remember saying to her, "Please don't, Sarah. Please don't. You know, it's too early." So, you know, that was my sort of very first reaction. Was oh my, oh no. Yeah. You know. But then, of course, we had. You know, we sorted it out with Gordon. Tony became the leader. And during that period, I mean, I've, 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 I have talked about this before, but 94 to 97, I mean, it was a thrilling and exciting time um, with, you know, bringing in sort of lots of people with ideas and, you know, energy. And we peopled our office with sort of fantastic people, some of the names I've already yeah. uh, mentioned just now. And we took Peter Hyman in, actually, and Alistair joined us. Yeah. So we started to build up, you know, a really formidable team. And then I can't remember when the general secretaryship changed from Tom Sawyer, but he was succeed who was brilliant, by the way. And then Margaret McDonough, now Baroness McDonough. Yeah. I mean, she was just a complete force of her own. And she just whipped that whole machine into shape. She was born New Labour, New Labour incarnate, working class New Labour. She totally understood you know, the, the, the fears and concerns of people on the council estates. She still, to this day, you know, goes out on the stump every, every, uh, every um, uh, weekend. Um, she totally understood the party, but she was a complete and utter aspirant and a total loyalist. Tony was the leader and she would do his bidding. And she was like a sort of ar army mate, you know, general. Yeah. The way she ran things. And it was a military operation, just sorting out the candidates, sorting out the constituencies, sorting out how each constitu constituency was being run, and starting to make um, um, uh, sort of plans for the general campaign, uh, the general election campaign. And what was your role in it? Because one of the things that's striking is that looking back on cuttings about you, you you don't ever seem to have had a proper job title, but you get sort of yeah, I, all these funny yeah, I know. things which are job titles, but nobody I knows mean, what they in, mean. In retrospect, of course, I should have insisted on titles because everyone's obsessed yeah. with them these days. <laughs> but actually, it's n titles have never yeah. ever concerned me. You know, I've I've got sufficient confidence in my you know my work yeah. and my ability, and. You know, if if I wasn't doing my job properly, I would have been removed. Yeah. So I knew I was doing my job properly, but I was I was then it was called head of office. Right. So I was head head of the opposition office. I yeah. basically you know was head of the office. I ran the office like a sort of I suppose like a COO. Yeah. Because it was sort of striking that you get called fixer, bag carrier in chief, keeper of the keys, gatekeeper, tie chooser. I know. Probably one of the worst I know. There's this sort of there is this sort of slightly. 
Is it yeah. sexist it is undertone slightly. to all of that? The, yeah, I think... The boys were doing yeah, all the big stuff. but we mustn't forget, you know, this was 20, 20 years, years ago, ago yeah, yeah. and things have changed yeah. quite considerably. Partly, you know, I mean, the thing about Tony in that entire period, even up to the night of the, you know, the election and the dawn, actually, yeah. when it finally sank in to him, he was like, he was sort of whipped us, you know, you know, his big mantra was no complacency. Yeah, yeah. He and he he instilled that so deep into me that I would even to the last minute, I wasn't convinced we were going to win. You know, we were we were told to disregard the polls and to go out. You know, every vote mattered and everything we did mattered and everything we said mattered, and we had to you know strive and and win people round to us. And that was what I was doing in that period. I was as I say, head of office, and I became, after I'd been in Downing Street, my title became government, head of government relations. And basically that's what I was doing for Tony, was being his sort of interface yeah. right from the beginning. You know, he said, I want you to be my alliance builder. Yeah. Now, as far as I know, there's no title that says alliance <laughs> yeah, builder. Yeah. But that's what it was. And it was within the party, within the House of Commons, you know, making sure that he was allied to the right people that, you know, would be loyal and helpful. Um, and then outside, I had to make alliances with opinion formers, yeah. basically. I mean, Alistair did journos. I tended to do the editors yeah. or the proprietors, yeah. more likely, just to get a channel from Tony to them. So we, you know, not to win them round, because you couldn't win them all round, yeah. but certainly just to open up a channel of communication. And I did it with heads of business. I did it with heads of the NGOs. You know, my job was to forge relationships with people. You know, this is from '94 onwards, in order so when the general election came, they wouldn't take frit, as we say in Scotland, um, at, at the prospect of a Labour government. And it was also your job to decide who got to see Tony and who didn't, wasn't it? The, the, yeah. Because yeah. obviously everybody thinks they're totally important and they yeah. have to see him all the time. Yeah. And he, he basically delegated that to you and, yeah. Yeah, and what yeah. you said. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't forget I joined him in 86. Yeah. So by the time 96 came along, 10 years, I'd been there a long time. Yeah. And I knew who was who yeah. and what was what. And who he actually wanted to see. And who, who he actually, and, you know, and I've got quite a nice manner, I think. I mean, people <laughs> might say that. But, you know, so that even if, you know, he didn't want to see them, I would get, make sure somebody else saw them, you know, that their, that any, you know, their particular um, thing that they wanted to convey was conveyed, yeah. even if they didn't get to see him directly. Well, he described you as being sexy, exuberant and more uh, ruthless than anyone. <laughs> oh, and it good. was that, that, just, like that, that. that combination yeah. seemed to be exactly what you needed to yeah. charm people, but also... Yeah. I, know, I, I don't dead. mind that. I no. don't mind that. <laughs> um, as well as obviously dealing with everyone outside, you had to deal with the personalities inside. And the tales in the run-up to the election, and obviously afterwards in government, but during the campaign, the big personalities of Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, Gordon Brown... John Prescott, each of them thinking they were the most important person, each of them wanting to know whether they were being left out or not included or whatever. How difficult was it for you dealing with, you know, on the one hand, you were trying to win a general election campaign while you had these sort of prima donnas? I know, well, I wouldn't say prima donnas so much. It's just, these are, were guys with massive egos. Yeah. That's what it, you know, pe some people do have massive egos. Funnily enough, Tony doesn't. Contrary you can, to popular can you, you, you can You can not have an ego if you're the leader, can't you? To some oh, extent. Maybe, maybe. I, but I have known lots of leaders with massive yes, egos yeah, too, yeah, that is actually. True, yeah, that is true. <laughs> um, but, 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it was part of my... It, it was what I'd always done. Yeah. It was politics, actually. Yeah, yeah. Politics is the art of, of managing yeah, yeah. massive egos and, and massive interests and the pursuit... You, you know what the definition yeah, yeah. of politics is, the pursuit of power. Yeah. And so once these guys, you know, that's what they want. They want to be considered, you know... As powerful, and they want to be able to be powerful because they want to do things. They, you know, they're not just power for power's sake. And who, who was the most difficult for you to deal with in that period? I mean, various points, and you know, whether it was Peter Mandelson refusing to resign or John Prescott being unhappy. I like you very much, Matt, but <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect. I'm not going to sort of diss one over the other. I mean, right at the beginning, and I know he won't mind me saying this. You know, I had a slight altercation with John. Prescott, because I thought he was treating me in a rather bullying and probably slightly misogynist way. Yeah. And I just said, hang on a second, John. You know, you know, if we are going to have to continue up this relationship, you know, you're just going to have to shape up a little in relation to me. And he did. Yeah. Actually. Um, But, you know, it was done in in the sort of nicest possible way. And um, I, you know, I didn't have any problems with any of them, to be honest with you. And what was the um, what, what's your sort of memories of the of, the, of that election campaign? Um, you know, the, in the run up to ninety seven, what sticks out for you? I, mean, as I was high points or low points. Yeah, my title was head of the leaders' campaign. Yeah. So basically, everything that Tony did and said, and everywhere he went, I knew it all backwards. Yeah. So I made sure he was in the right place with the right people, with the right speech in his hand the right interviews he'd done on the battle bus. Yeah. You know, all those things of each day. Yeah. And, and it was planned day by day. Yeah, yeah. And we, I can't remember when we sat down and first looked at the grid. Yeah. Peter Mandelson produced the grid, yeah. which was based, and with Philip Gould, yes. which was based on, um, there would be a topic of the day, whether it was yeah. health or, you know, economy or whatever it might be, education. And, and everything else would, and it would be an announcement or, or you know, pointed to some part of our yeah. in our in our manifesto, um, and then a visit attached to that, and then all the sort of the regional media and the regional pickup around it. And the idea with that was the way of to try to stop if you you know if Tony were talking about health, you didn't have Gordon talking about the economy yeah. and somebody else talking yeah. about schools uh, and uh, all becoming you, a muddle. It was an amazing military operation, um, and what made it work, and actually what made Downing Street work thereafter, was we all had very specific roles. Yeah. Everybody knew what Angie Hunter did. Everybody knew what Alastair Campbell did. Everybody knew Jonathan's role. Everybody knew Margaret MacDonald's role. Everybody knew Gordon's role, obviously, Peter. Yeah. So we all knew, and we had specific responsibilities which we delivered on. Yeah. So everybody was very clear about what, you know, their remit. Yeah. And we would meet constantly and make sure that everybody knew what everyone else was doing. It was it was an it, it was an extraordinary group of people that just happened to work extraordinarily well together without any nonsense. One of the things looking back over the campaign which now seems sort of uh, you know, it's taken for granted is what happens is what politicians do, but things like reaching out to women's magazines or doing the Des O'Connor show. That took up a lot of time and anxiety about whether or not it was the right thing to do. They were quite risky things. Yeah, they do. were. They were. But high risk, high gain. Well, you know, there was that element too that we were prepared to do those things. And and my God, we prepared for them. Yeah. I mean, Tony didn't just waltz into any of these 
any of these things without thinking really carefully. Yeah. And it's taught me that this to this day, I mean, I never ever go anywhere if I'm speaking without having really knowing who the audience is and what their interests yeah. might be and you know, making sure that you didn't screw up, basically. And, and doing those things like Des O'Connor or Frank Skinner or whatever, was that, is that another sign of how uncomplacent the campaign was? That yeah. you really felt you had to keep on reaching more oh, and more God, people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was the most time-consuming but, you know, thrilling yeah. period of my life because you really did get a sense that you were on a sort of incredible adventure, an incredible role, yeah. you know, with this incredible goal did at you, the end of it. Did you ever think at any point during the campaign were you going to win this? No, I never did. You were always worried that it yeah, wouldn't happen? Something, something yeah. would go wrong. Even when a BBC correspondent rang me up on the night of the election to say, um, what the exit polls were, I said, "Don't, don't, don't say, don't tell anyone else." You know? <laughs> I was sort of scuttling to Tony, who heard it. You know, also I think Alistair had been tipped off about the same time, and he just and he said, "I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear <laughs> Even it." Even when at that point yeah. nothing more could be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember our plane trip back from Sedgefield that night. I mean, you know, there had been this sort of incredible sense of. Of, of momentum, of, of activity. You know, we were all so focused on this end result. Um, and just work, work, work every day out there, yeah. picking up more votes, you know, trying to reach as many people as possible through these different channels, yeah. as you've, you've just mentioned. But also actually physically. Yeah. I remember those last, that last five days. I remember the, guy, the amazing guy, Alan Barnard, who worked for Margaret, who's, who'd been working on a campaign called The Last Five Days for about two years wow. prior to that. Just the last five days, where we would go, what we would do. And there was this, that real sense in the last five days. I remember we were, had a sort of big, we were trying to get loads of people to different places. And I remember we, were, we used helicopters for the journalists too. There was like a fleet of 15 helicopters. It was sort of like something out of a apocalypse now. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It was sort of extraordinary. And then I remember going to the marketplace and God, where was it? It was, you know, one of those old towns up in the northeast. And it was just full of people. I and mean, we were with Helen Mirren because yeah. we were doing a thing on yeah. crime. That's where we were clever too. Yeah. You know, bringing in these sort of sort of personalities. I, I don't like to use the word celebrities. We did use one or two, but personalities. And they got caught up in the, in yeah. the you know, in the sort of adventure of it too. And it was interesting because, it, actually what we've seen uh, since, they yeah. tend not to, but getting personalities or celebrities to become political is a real struggle, because right. in this country people don't like to do it. Yeah, but it's fantastically high risk. Yeah. Because you never know what they're going to say, yeah. you cannot control it, you, you, you know, nor should you. So it's high risk for you, you as well as for them. Yeah, a, yeah. a huge high risk for us yeah. as well. Yeah. Because um, it can rebound, that whole last five days, going towards the what ended up being this astonishing victory. And I so remember leaving Sedgefield that night to go back down to London, sh shocked, actually, by the scale of the victory and the responsibility of yeah. that. And I can remember Tony and Cherie on the plane sitting there. I remember her, her looking at him. And I remember her, he was not frozen by it at all, in such deep thought about my God, you know, the enormity of what had 
you know, happened. Yeah. And we were all overwhelmed by the enormity of what had happened. I mean, we picked ourselves up, obviously, the next day and, sort of, you, know, you know, skipped into Downing Street. But that night, the sh it, we were in genuine shock. And I remember on the plane, Alistair got a text or something about Michael Portillo. We found out that on the, I'm sure it was on the plane. Maybe we were just on the tarmac waiting to leave. And that was a real big shock. Yeah. Seismic shock. Stephen Twigg. Stephen Twigg. Yeah. And I thought, God, Stephen's going to be an absolute shock. <laughs> and in fact, when I looked at the coverage, you know, of the yeah. announcement. He was of, more shocked than Portilla. You see Stephen's <laughs> face, you know. I mean, people, we were all, you know in awe yeah. of the result, and it was unexpected. Um, a lot of people said to us, uh, you know, afterwards, oh God, you must have known, but, you know, I can honestly, hand on heart, say we never anticipated that, we never presumed it, and we really did work like bilio to, to get there. And that, so the following morning then, the sort of famous, the, you know, the sun was always shining in, you know, under New Labour, but the, the, on that first morning, uh, when Tony goes to the palace and he goes up Downing Street and you've got people waving Union Jacks and all of that. Where were you when that was happening? I was right outside the door. I, there's this, there was a wonderful photograph of myself, Jan Royal, walking up Downing Street. We must have got there like a, an hour before the Prime Minister yeah. was arriving just to check it all. The first thing I thought when I got there was, my God, Margaret... You know, how did you do this? Yeah. Margaret had somehow persuaded them to allow the whole of Downing Street to be filled with our supporters yeah. waving the Union Jack. Yeah. You know, that was that's Margaret for you. And Jackie <laughs> Stacey's in the other part. You know, there was nothing that if you said to Margaret, I want 500 people here or 20 people there, that it, couldn't be done it like happened. that. It, you know, everything could be delivered. Partly because you had a party, you know, yeah, yeah. that was so, you know, excited itself and would do things like that. But I remember walking up and getting to the door. And I remember when I, because I always had a good relationship with the journalists. That was always my, that was another alliance building yeah. I did. I never fell out with them. And quite often, you know, I would have to sort of sweep up after Alistair, <laughs> you know, sort of good cop, bad cop. And I remember when I went up and a lot of the, We'd had a lot of those journalists travelling with us yeah. on the on the campaign, six week campaign, yeah. I think it was, and they. So I got to know them really well, yeah. and I remember when I walked up, they all clapped. I loved that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, Angie, you know, well done, well done, incredibly nice. Yeah, yeah. And then I just stood there with, um, um, you know, the rest yeah. of them, Jonathan, everybody. We were just waiting outside, and then they arrived, and in we went. And so how quickly? Because the bizarre way that our political system works one minute the other team are there and then they all go and so you just sort of That's I, I, arrive in Downing I mean, Street I really I, I've always said this about the civil service <clears throat> I mean I've got a you know I'm in awe of the civil service you know I've got a massive high regard yeah. and respect for them and particularly the ones in Downing Street I mean we are talking about the absolute mm. creme de la creme of um, of, of civil servants who um, serve every master or mistress. Yeah. You know, they, they, they are non-political. They don't display their, yeah. their political um, affiliations. And literally, that same group of people, as we went in, had been there an hour before, weeping, yeah. as John Major left. And Norma, you know, they would have walked, you know, they, they line the corridor from the door down to the 
Prime Minister's office. It's quite a long corridor yeah. in, in, in Downing Street. Lovely corridor, it's got windows, so it's light and wide. So you've got you know, plenty of room for people on each side, you know, a sort of row on each side. And they had clapped out uh, John Major and they clapped us in. Beaming, yeah. you know, literally beaming and, and delightful. And I, I think some of them were genuinely beaming particularly all the policy guys, because they, you know, the, the previous six months or nine months, probably a year up to 97, Downing Street had been in, a, in meltdown. Because there'd been such internecine warfare. The Conservatives, you know, there was one problem after another, you know, dodgy envelopes and all the rest of it. You know, it, you know, it was a ghastly period. And there'd been no policy. It had all been politics yeah. in that last year. So the really clever civil servant experts in their field. When we walked in, they knew what the pledge card was. Yeah. And also, I mean, the thing I've, I, I hadn't mentioned, you know, whilst I was there thinking we weren't going to win, there were one or two people, Jonathan Powell was yeah. one of them, and he'll, he'll tell you this himself. He, his job during that period was to talk to the civil service yeah, yeah. and was to say, when we come in, this is what we'll be doing. You know, that's what you have to do. And yeah. he had come from the civil service originally. He was Tony's chief of staff, but he knew the way Whitehall operated, which is one of the yeah, other yeah. reasons why we employed him in the first yeah. place, of course, because um, he had a, a knowledge and an expertise. And because Labour had been out of power for so long, very few people had, had, had experience no. of government or no. running departments. Only Margaret like. Beckett yeah. had been in government before, yeah. I think. Or maybe what Jack Cunningham. Yeah. I can't remember, one or two others. But it was... Um, uh, so he had been, you know, talking yeah. to the to the civil service, and he'd also sent. Interesting. He'd also there's a Oxford College, civil service college, and he'd got some of the colleagues, the senior colleagues that were going to get cabinet posts to go down there and do these courses. And then you have lessons in being a and minister. have lessons yeah, yeah. in being a minister. Literally that. And I remember John. Uh, Tony not wanting to know anything about it <laughs> because it was too. He was just af afraid of doing it yeah, yeah. because it was again. You know, it would have it would have, might have shown complacency, yeah, yeah. which he was sort of so totally opposed to. Um, superstition, superstition is the word. The, yeah. um, I must ask you about what then happened. So you then go into government, and after a while, and you said you weren't worried about titles, and you you weren't worried about pay either. And you, it gradually became apparent to you yeah. that you weren't being paid as much as your <laughs> no, male what, colleagues. No, what became apparent, Matt, in quite short order, was that the chaps, you know, particularly, and I, I considered myself, and I, I think Tony would agree with me, that I was, we, we were triumvirate. Yeah. It was myself, Jonathan, and Alistair. We each had very specific, you know, roles to, 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 to perform um, and worked extremely well together, I, 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 yeah. I, I hasten to add. Um, but I found out quite early on that they had, prior to the election, negotiated their salaries with the civil service. And A, I was in shock by that because I'd done what my boss had told me to do, which was not be complacent. And take things across, do not stop measuring presume, curtains and all of do that. Do not presume anything. Yeah. And the idea that they would have been so presumptuous as to go and even negotiate their salary sort of took me aback. Firstly, and then when I saw the sums involved, <laughs> also it took me about. And so I did fight hard, but it was quite difficult to do once you've signed your contract, and once <laughs> you've got your, 
your your position. Yeah. It was quite a difficult thing to do, and I know it caused a bit of a, a rumpus. But I did feel that I was being unfairly treated, which I was, and I needed parity. Do you think that was because you were a woman? Possibly, yeah, possibly. Uh, possibly. I don't think it would be so likely to happen now, yeah. a days. Yeah. I think 20 years, you know, we've come on, and this is what, this is what I do, I'm an Edelman now, yeah. and I'm a senior advisor here, and part of my job here is to bring on the next tranche of executive women. Yeah. And we have changed yeah. over the last 20 years, and, you know, employment conditions have changed, and everything is just much more transparent and open anyway. So I think it was just, it was the times. I mean, look, when I first went to Tony, there were only 41 MPs. Yeah. You know, in 97, we had 191. Yeah. And we've got, what, 200 something yeah. now. So, you know, the whole sort of, it's all, it has changed dramatically in relation to women and how women are treated. Yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. And, I, I, you know, I think it was a bit because I was a woman, but I wasn't pushy enough myself. You know, I blame myself, too. <laughs> but they were, well, or they were just pushier. That's or the, they were the pushier. Because they were, the, they were they, boys. Yeah, you know, and it was all part of... You know, uh, generally speaking, <clears throat> even to this day, I think boys are marginally pushier than girls. Yeah. When it comes to work, the workplace. I do just need to ask you as well about your relations with Cherie, because the... All the memoirs from that period talk about the difficult relationship we had. But was you, what did you put that down to? Was it just the fact that you were ultimately controlling I mean, everywhere her husband went and everything he did? Yeah. I mean, A, the stories are nothing. You know, they don't compare to the actual reality of it because, you know, we, have a per, you know, we had a perfectly good working relationship. Um, but, they sh- you know, I, I did feel really sorry for her. I mean, she was propelled. She was a barrister. Mm. And she had one frock, you know. <laughs> and I, I knew them really well. I used to go and stay with them yeah. quite often, you know, regularly. And I knew the kids really well. Um, I used to share a room with Catherine, actually. And there she was, propelled yeah. 
literally, I mean, you can remember the photograph yeah. of her, sort of when she opened the, sort of the door, yeah, and the there's five flowers. million photographers yeah, outside. Yeah. I mean, it, and it, you know, she was propelled from being this really hard-working, successful barrister mother of three kids, you know, living a perfectly nice life, in a very family-centric. Yeah. She was very close to her own mum yeah. um, and dad and her own sisters. You know, it was really sort of close-knit thing. And then, overnight, to be... And very, very close um, um, relationship with Tony. Yeah. You know, very, very solid, happy marriage. And then overnight, to just hardly ever seeing him. Yeah. So she did get tetchy. Yeah. I, I don't... Uh, she would uh, uh, say that herself. Not just with me, but, you know, sometimes more so with me, because I was having to be the one. And he was a bad, of course. You know, <laughs> he, he would say, oh, God, it's Angie making me do such and such. You know, whether it was the brownies. Yeah. You know, she was told, you know... And sometimes I didn't give her enough notice for stuff, you know, and I, and I regret that. Um, you know, just... You know, she had to, the brownies arrived at the door one day. You know, the annual brownies thing, yeah, yeah. and Tony and Tree. You know, the prime minister and yeah. the prime minister's uh, partner, spouse, always has to go and yeah. you know speak to the brownies. And I hadn't given, hadn't told, and she was, t you know, sort of had to be hoiked out from somewhere, and naturally crossed yeah, with yeah, me yeah. over that. So it was those sort of things, and also I think there was a little bit of. I remember Tom Baldwin wrote about this. They were, again, it was a slight misogynist streak. Mm amongst the, the journos yeah. that, you know, they described us as ferrets in a sack. Myself, Cherie and Sally Morgan, you yeah. know, the three powerful yeah. women in there. There was a little bit of that. So I think that's, you know, it, it came from that too. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I had every sympathy for her and, think, you know, it was, it was really tough and, you know, I can see why she didn't, you know, I spent most of my time with him. You know, yeah, yeah, he yeah. spent more time with me yeah. probably than he did with her. Yeah. Or, or certainly all of us together. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, And, you know, she'd be trying to have a nice evening with him and he'd send for us. And we'd have to go and have a meeting in his sitting room. And she'd be, you know, Cherie, can you go and get them something to eat? You know, I mean, it's... <laughs> you can see why... I, you, you can see it. You can see why she, get, can she, just would, see why yeah, she yeah. would just get a bit shirty. Yeah, yeah. With us all. And so, looking back now, it, I mean, it's 20 years ago, it's a long time ago, but comparing it to the Labour Party of today, it seems like a million years ago. I mean, what, what, how do you feel? Having put in all of that work to get the Labour Party into government, how do you feel when you look at the Labour Party now? Look, well, I did my dissertation in 87, and I think it was entitled, oh, it was 86, I can't remember when I did 85, 86, and it was, the title was Wither the Left. And my conclusion in that was that the Labour Party were finished. <laughs> it, it's true, Matt. You know, I was writing about that period, yeah. and that the rain. You know, maybe it was going to be sort of an SDP rainbow coalitiony type thing. Um, you know, the, Livingston was then in, in in London, and I and I concluded that basically the Labour Party had been taken over by the extremists, um, and uh, entryism. I heard that on yeah. the radio this very morning, that word again. Uh, and that was my conclusion. And look what happened 10 years later. So I don't write the Labour Party off, but I'm naturally extremely disappointed with its current parlour state. It's not the party that I know and love. Um, I, you, know, there's, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why, why it, it, it happened. You know, it, it, I think it's... Be, I do blame myself or ourselves that we just couldn't have embedded new Labour deep enough. It must come down to that. And these entryists 
that we thought, you know, we'd, were sort of locked up and the key we'd thrown away, you know, are all back. Yeah. Now, run, you know, very, very powerful now. You know, there's going to be some phoenix is going to rise from these ashes. <laughs> and it may be renewed Labour Party itself. Yeah. Um, and that will one day, you know, be back in the, the mould that I helped create. Yeah. Do you think there is a place for a new party? There's been lots of talk about whether it's Tony and George Osborne and Nick Clegg. They're all sort of, they're all closer to each other than they are to own parties. Do you think the electoral system just means that doesn't work? Uh, Look, look at Macron. You know, yeah. I know it's a different electoral system, but you know, things have changed, yeah. and I think movements can spring up much more quickly than they yeah. than they used to be able to. Tony, for, certainly, and and I, and I think I can speak for George Osborne and Nick Clegg for that matter. In this, I, I don't think any of them are saying there should be a new party, and I'm going to be the leader of yeah, it. Yeah. What they're all saying is there's this huge empty spe- space in the middle. You know, with millions of people in it. I'm not empty. There's millions of people in this place. And they don't have a home in the Conservative Party. They don't have a home in the Labour Party. And they are saying, you know, where is my political home? And what they are saying, Tony's saying specifically in relation to his institute, is that he's providing a platform for ideas, for people to come and discuss the way forward. You know, how are we going to deal with globalisation? How are we going to deal with the disaffected? How are we going to deal with you know, artificial intelligence. Yeah. You know, if, if it's true that in 20 years from now, that, you know, 48% of the current jobs are no longer going to exist because of AI, you know, what are we doing about that? Are governments working, you know, with policy people in this whole area, with employers? I think business needs to get so much more involved in this whole debate too, and work with government yeah. to formulate new policies. But, you know, I'm, I'm not, dis- you know, I, I am a Remainer, so, I, you know, I'm up, slightly upset about the, you know, the direction of, but I entirely agree with everything that Tony's say <laughs> about Europe and about this, the, the middle ground. Um, and so I'm not, you know, I, I don't feel low. Yeah. I think there's lots of opportunity, but it's for the next generation in my view, yeah, how, for the young ones. How much of the problem do you think it is that, I suspect there are lots of people who agree with what Tony's saying, but don't like him. I know. Why do you think that? Is, is that because he arrived on such a high? Did it, the sort of I don't, you know, I, I just think it's sort of, it is exaggerated. I mean, when I am out and about, I cannot tell you the number of people that come up to me and say, do you still see your old boss? And I say, yeah, and they say, give him my very best. And that's from taxi drivers, you know, right the way through. I think there's, you know, I, I, I hate to pick off one sort of group of newspapers against another, and I'm, I've been careful about those. But the mail has not been fair on Tony, in my view, at all. I think the Iraq war may may have been, you know, a, a factor in all of this. But I still think, as he does, that you know, with the information we had at the time, that's the thing that had to be done. I think it's, you know, why, why can't he earn a few bob? Every other prime minister's done it. Um, I mean, it's the same with George Osborne. Oh, exactly. He's, I mean, he's, you know, he's got plenty of jobs. Yeah, I mean, and Boris Johnson was editor as well as an MP. You know, the idea, I don't know whether it's led by the media or propelled by social media or how it occurs, but people just get their gander up Mm. about somebody or something and they they all vilify that person or thing. And I do think it's grossly unfair. And I think history, actually. I mean, I'm a historian by my academic training. And I do think that Tony will, you know, history will treat him very well. 
I think people will, you know, 50 years, 100 years from now, which is, which is actually when you should look at, at things in their context, um, he will be seen as a great Prime Minister that really moved this country on. Angie Hunter, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Red Boxes series, Lessons in a Landslide. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes using iTunes or on your Android device and sign up to my morning Red Box email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.